You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. We're going to be in the book of Jonah. Uh, we started in it last week, and we're going to be in it one more week, so we're doing three weeks in the book of Jonah. And last week, we did a, a broad overview of the book itself, um, made mention of the fact that the book of Jonah is uh, it's different from all of the other minor prophets. Uh, and we said that uh, two things that it wasn't. It's, it's not normal. Like, it is not a normal book. Uh, everything about it is backwards, upside down, exaggerated, big, uh, intentionally so. It reads very differently than all the other things. The second thing that we said that it's not is it's not just a kid's story. Uh, which oftentimes when you think of the story of Jonah... It's just, you know, some caricature picture of right Jonah and the whale or something like that, which I think is just a misrepresentation of people's memory memory of how Pinocchio goes. Right? Like that's that's really what kind of what comes to mind when they think of that. And that's not what the story is either either. We concluded with the fact that the book of Jonah is a prophetic mirror. Uh, it's intended in such a way as to st- to drive you in because it's a it's an interesting story the way that it's told and the it's it's a captivating um, uh, story but at the end of it it just ends really abruptly and all of a sudden as you're in the midst of this and you're looking at this goofy character of Jonah and the stupid decisions that he's making and these crazy things that are happening and all this kind of stuff you get to the end and all of a sudden you realize this is actually the story of me. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at uh, the movement towards repentance. The movement towards repentance. Think back in your own life, as far back as you can remember, to the first time that you felt guilty for doing something. The first time you got caught. The first time you got to school. You'd done something that you distinctly knew this was wrong and I've been, I've been caught. I don't know how old I was. I was pretty little, maybe like four or five years old. And I can distinctly remember uh, being at my church, and I was in the nursery, and they had this plastic key that I just thought was the coolest thing, right? Like it's always, you know, kids get so enthralled with certain little toys and they, you know, we as adults are just like, why is this the favorite thing, right? But there was this plastic key, no idea. And what I envisioned was this key was going to be the key that I was going to use to turn on my gigantic robot dinosaur that I was going to build. Because I'm a kid, right? Like I'm, I'm envisioning all these things. And so this key needed to go with me home. And of course I'm little, right? So I need to sneak and I know that this is key it does not belong to me. This belongs to the church nursery. So I need to get this key out and smuggle it back to my house so that as I'm building this gigantic robot dinosaur thing, because Transformers was a thing back in the eighties, uh, you know, I, I'm gonna be building this thing. And so the only thing I was wearing cowboy boots at the time and so I took the key and I stuck it down inside of the cowboy boots because that seemed like a good place to smuggle contraband out of the church nursery. 
but you know, as little kids do, you don't think about all the implications that I'm going to have to walk around with this key shoved down inside of my boot before I get into the... And also, you know, mom is like, what are you limping for as you're going there? And I get caught and busted and get a spanking and the whole bit. And I realize, like, I know what I'm doing is wrong. And as I think back on the reality of that, that nobody had to teach me how to do wrong things, right? I came up with this whole concept all on my own. And if you are a parent of a child or have been around a child, you realize that uh, doing bad things comes very, very natural to us as human beings. And so it is the point of us to understand this concept of repentance. We cannot have Christianity without repentance. It does not exist apart from this. And it is this huge theme that we have in Christianity. And yet, very often when we sing songs and we hear sermons and those kind of things, the call to repentance, the call to a brokenness of sin uh, and a grieving before God and this change of mind and change of heart and change of direction is not very often... Emphasize. We often talk very much about God's love and His forgiveness and His mercy and those kind of things. But the image of repentance is something that we definitely need to grow in. And it is this huge theme throughout the book of Jonah. We're going to be looking uh, kind of again at a 30,000 foot view of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all of them uh, and keep you here in the midst of it. But I want us to see three acts of repentance how those, the movement of those happens from the, the sin itself to the, the response of God in the midst of those kind of things uh, and building this up. So again, just as a, a broad overview, it's four chapters long. Chapter one is God comes to um, Jonah in a, in a dream, in a trance kind of a thing and tells him to get up and go to Nineveh, uh, this people group that was the, the, the capital of the Assyrian Empire to go and preach against them because their wickedness has come up before God. And Jonah being the prophet of God, the man of God, the one who gets up and says, thus says the Lord, and is honored in that. It is, is referenced uh, in the book of Kings uh, related to his role in the, the northern kingdom of Israel. What does he do? He gets up and goes the absolute opposite direction. Goes as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can. Gets on a boat uh, and in the midst of that, God causes a storm to come on the, the scene. That The sea begins to swell. And the the um, sailors that are on there that are not Jewish, they're, uh, they're polytheistic sailors in the midst of that. They're afraid and they uh, are trying to pitch stuff over the side of the boat to save themselves from drowning. They find Jonah. They find out what it is, who he is and what he's about. And they pitch him over the side of the boat and the storm stops. God points a great fish to come and swallow Jonah, and that's the end of chapter 1. Chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish. So you picture him in the, in the darkness of the inside of the belly of that fish with squid beaks floating next to him and all the other stuff that's there. And in the midst of that, he has this prayer of repentance. In chapter 3, he finally does do what God tells him to do. He goes into, travels into Nineveh, uh, takes him weeks to get there from where he's at. And he gets and walks into the middle of Nineveh and preaches a five-word sermon and then walks out and waits for God to do what He's going to do. And what happens? The people all in mass repent of what they have done. 
And chapter 4 is Jonah's pity party at the end of it because he's so angry that God has not destroyed Nineveh. Uh, And this is one of the reasons why this book is so different from all the other ones. All the other prophets, they don't read the same way. They're all much more prophetic in their writing. In other words, if you read them, you don't understand what's going on unless you have a lot of context and history and and dynamics and understanding the poetic, poetic nature and all these kind of things. This reads as one continuous story. And we get these three distinctly different groups that have confronted God with sin. Obviously, Jonah, the man of God, the prophet of God, like the preacher of his day, the one that people would go to and say, what does God say? What does God want? What does the Lord God of Israel require of us? And it was his job to be the one that responded in that way to be able to teach that. And what does he do? He does not do what God says. The one who knows the right that he ought to do, he doesn't do it. Then you got these pagan sailors. They're just living their life. They're just doing what they're doing. They're worshiping their little gods, their little idols. They're getting up and doing their day job and shipping this guy across. And they're just traveling along doing their things. All of a sudden they get caught up in the sin of Jonah and they're experiencing the consequences of that. And then of course, Nineveh, this Assyrian uh, empire, we talked a little bit at length last week about the nature of the Assyrians. What was it about them that was so evil? What was it about them that was so bad? Now, they weren't as bad or weren't as much the enemies of Israel as we understand them to be later on in the story at the writing of Jonah. Uh, but they were a very wicked people. And so this experience of them being confronted with their sin and repentance is such a dramatic thing. And we see a pattern that arises from this. And it's the same pattern that we see in our own lives when it comes to the nature of how we get towards or how we get to repentance. The first act is rebellion. It's the act of sin. Rebellion. The act of sin. When we think of sin, oftentimes sin is one of those subjects within our culture that we've, we've kind of lost um, a, kind of a reference point for. When you think of, say back 50, 60 years ago, and you had guys like Billy Graham that would get on television and they would preach a sermon and people would respond uh, in mass to these sermons. They'd have these big crusades and that kind of stuff. And they would just literally get up and say, you have sinned before a holy God. Repent. And people would be like, yes, I have sinned and there would be this transformation that would take place. And I've met tons and tons of people in their 50s and 60s and 70s who came to faith at the preaching of guys like uh, Billy Graham that came up and preached, you've sinned and you need a Savior and they understood that reality. But something has changed within our world. Something's changed in our context. When we talk about issues of sin, people say, I haven't sinned. Well, what's your definition of sin? How do you understand what sin is? And we've lost this kind of cultural mooring of what is it that makes sin, sin. The Bible describes sin in a number of different ways as an overarching thing. Sin is an act of rebellion against God. It is going against the things of God, the character of God, the nature of God, the command of God, everything that emanates from God, and it is contrary to that. And it plays out kind of in four different ways. If you kind of imagine a a grid, if you will, and any combination of these things becomes sin, but they're unique in their own way. 
The first is the sin of action. Sometimes we call it sins of commission. Uh, But sins of action. This is doing something that is sinful, right? Murder, adultery, lying, covetousness. Doing an action that is distinctly bad and evil, contrary to the nature of God. It is an action that we do. And oftentimes when we think of sin, these are the kind of things like everybody looks at a serial killer and says, yep, that was bad. Right? Those are, these are bad actions and they need to be stopped. And the Bible talks a lot about the sins of action or sins of commission. But another aspect that the Bible talks about sin that is a little bit less obvious to us is sins of inaction. You might call them sins of omission. These are things like when we know the good we ought to do and we don't do it. When we know we ought to love and we don't. When we know we ought to forgive and we don't. This is not an action per se, but a withholding of an action. A not doing of the thing that we ought to do. And the Bible describes these in such a way as to say it is sinful for us to not do certain things. So we have sins of action and sins of inaction. But we also have sins of ignorance. This is the, I didn't know. I didn't know it was wrong. So does it make it sinful if I didn't know it? Right? Well, I mean, again, think in the reality of like, we understand this in terms of driving. If you get pulled over on the side of the road and the officer looks at you and he says, did you know that the speed limit is 35 and you were going 80? And you go, well, I didn't know. Does he let you off the hook? Of course not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you didn't know. The fact that you were ignorant of the reality of what it was does not change the fact of its uh, the wrongness of it. But obviously, again, the op- opposite of that, we have sins of ignorance, but we have sins of willful defiance. Yes, I know that it was 35, and I didn't care. I'm going to do it. Anyways, I'm going to act this way out. And so it doesn't matter whether you know it's right or wrong and you do it, or you don't know that it's wrong and you still do it. And so we have this funky grid, and as we look at these three characters, we see a combination of all of those. We have Jonah, one who is willfully omitting his actions. He knows what he ought to do, which is to go and preach what God tells him to do. And what does he do? He doesn't do that. He does not obey. He does not act. He withholds what he's supposed to do. And he willfully, knowing who God is, what God's about, what His role is, and all of that, he does exactly the opposite of what he was intended to do. It's one of the things that makes it a really scary reality because he's the character in all of this that should know better and yet he doesn't do it. Then we have the sailor's idolatry. And what this is is ignorant commission or ignorant action. They didn't know any better. They were just sailors. They were just of whatever ethnicity they were. They were from whatever country they were from. They were grew up in whatever environment. They, they just didn't know any better. 
And yet the reality of their life was that they were worshiping false gods. They were breaking the first commandment of God as He said that you shall have no other gods before Me. That all heaven and all everything in creation declares the reality of who God is and what God's about. And in their ignorance, they were uh, committing the acts of idolatry. Do you guys, any of you guys remember the uh, the movie from the 90's uh, the Brendan Fraser movie The Mummy you guys remember that you remember the scene where the mummy first appears and there's that one kind of the sleazy character that's in there and he's terrified and he brings out the necklace that has the cross on it and he starts praying the Hail Mary and the guy's still coming at him he's like nope that doesn't work and he pulls out the little Hira Krishna thing and he starts yeah 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 no no that didn't work right and finally he pulls out the, the star of David and the guy's like oh this is one of the slaves right and he makes him his servant that's kind of what I picture these these uh, these guys doing on the top of the ship like uh, hey you pray to your God Nope, that didn't work. All right, you pray to your God. Nope, nope, that didn't work. Right, like they're all just paying whatever work, whatever. However, we need to do this. Whatever we need to do to cover our bases, to figure this out, to appease whatever they're realizing that there's something about this storm that is divine in nature, and that we've done something to offend the gods. And then, of course, we have Nineveh's evil, which was willful commission, and we know that it was willful. Because when they repent, in, uh, in Jonah chapter 3, uh, it says in um, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, it says, When word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, and covered himself in sackcloth and, on, uh, and sat on ashes. And he issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man or beast or herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. In other words, he's saying, we knew it was wrong. We knew it was evil. We knew it was wicked. And we did it anyways. So do you see this compare and contrast dynamic of these three entities? Jonah was willfully not doing what he was supposed to do. The sailors were unintentionally doing what they weren't supposed to do. And Nineveh was willfully doing what they knew was wrong. And in all of these things, in all of this craziness, we see vast sin. We see powerful sin in the reality of it. When we think of our own sinfulness, we land in all kind of elements of this. When we have acts of lust and we know we ought to not do those things, they are willful commission. When we know we ought to say a word of compassion or a word of love to somebody and we just don't do it, it becomes a willful act of omission. The longer you're a follower of Jesus, the more and more all of a sudden you realize all of the ignorant sin that is in our lives. We study God's Word and we're like, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that about myself. I didn't know that this element or this component of, of the Christian life was true and real and right. And it exposes more and more reality of our rebellion, the act of sin. And it's filled with this story. So we have rebellion. That's the first movement. The second movement of that is consequence. Sometimes. Consequence. Sometimes. The act of outcome. 
Sometimes God uses consequences to awaken us to the reality of our rebellion. Sometimes. We don't always experience consequence because of our rebellion. We don't always experience consequence because, direct, immediate consequence because of our sin. In fact, I think it would, life would be very different if that was the reality of it, right? Like if, if God had just wired into us this, you know, the, the, you know, everybody always jokes about the whole lightning bolt from heaven kind of thing. If you, you know, you blaspheme God and you're dead, right? If we experience a lightning jolt every time that we sin, we would probably make us think a little bit more regularly, right? But the consequences of our sin don't always come in our life. But sometimes, sometimes they do. And sometimes God uses those moments to awaken in us the reality that what we have been participating in, what we have been doing, is not good. It's not uh, good. Most of the time our sin has implications to more than just ourselves. We oftentimes think of our own sin in terms of, well, does it, is it really affecting me? Does it affect my job? Does it affect my relationship? Does it affect my ability to continue on with life? And we have the ability to kind of hide those elements and cover those elements up and, and move through Does I, my pride or my arrogance or uh, my covetousness or whatever it is that I wrestle with, whatever it is that I struggle with, can I contain it to just me and not allow it to affect anything outside of that? And the reality of that is No. See, the interesting thing about sin is that oftentimes it has consequence that affects not just us. Think about this in the story. Jonah and the sailors are literally in the same boat. Not just proverbially in the same boat. They're literally in the same boat. And whose sin is it that caused the sea to well up and almost swamp the boat? Literally where it says that the boat, it, it personifies the boat. It says the boat threatened, like, I'm going to break up. Whose sin was it that brought that about? It was Jonah's. And his sin is now affecting these guys that are just going about their normal everyday life. I think about the reality of that as it is playing out in Ukraine right now. The sin of Russian leaders who living in arrogance and pride is having direct effects on the lives of other people. This plays out in aspects of parenting. This plays out in aspects of marriage. This plays out in aspects of friendship and relationship. That our sin changes and shapes us in such a way where it begins to have consequences, not just on us, but on those that are around us. As we see this here, though, the consequences of Nineveh, at this moment, they're not experiencing it. They're, They're thriving. They're willfully acting in violence. And they are growing. They're expanding. They're becoming more powerful. And this is a frustrating thing for us as we think about the nature of sin, is why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? Why is it that we see the wicked thriving? Do you know there's a whole lot of psalms that are written on that statement? Wrestling with the question of why is it, God, that the wicked prosper? It doesn't seem right. The whole book of Ecclesiastes has huge overtones on the reality of that. But what about when people don't have to experience the consequences of their own actions? That comes to the next movement. So we have rebellion, consequence, confrontation. 
confrontation, the act of truth, the act of truth. When the truth of sin is revealed to us, it produces this unique thing called guilt. When the truth of sin is revealed to us, it produces this divinely appointed feeling called guilt. And again, you've heard me say this a number of times. We live in a moment in which the subjects of guilt and shame are oftentimes uh, put in such a light as to say, you should never feel guilt. You should never feel shame. Those are negative emotions. You shouldn't have those kind of things. And yet the Scriptures are filled with this reality that when we are confronted with sin, our sin, my sin, the truth of it, that it is sinful, produces in us guilt. And that guilt is a gift from God. Because it shows us that we have actually sinned. Now the reality is, some people are so desensitized to guilt that they can just evade it as kind of a marathon runner pushes through fatigue. You just ignore the, the hardness of it. You just ignore the feeling of, yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever, and you just push on. As if ignoring the truth will make it any less True. This is one of those issues that plays into people's lives when they deal with besetting sins, sins that are just perpetual in their life that they struggle with again and again. And over time, it's like our soul develops a callous to it that we don't feel it anymore. It doesn't have the bite that it maybe initially did. Some people will respond to guilt in pride as in, yep, that's right, I did that. That's who I am. That's what I'm about. That's, this, is, this is what defines me. They may respond to it in arrogance. They may respond to it in dismissal. It's not really that big of a deal. Uh, it's not as bad as the other guy. It's, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, not, uh, it not, it's not really what it uh, feels like. Or they may respond in what's been most recently described as deconstruction. Well, it's always actually been understood wrongly. What we really should understand it is like this, or this recontextualizing the nature so I don't have to feel guilty because we've really never really understood it correctly or the way that it should actually really be understood. The, conf- the conf- uh, confrontation of the sailors was this. The ship is creaking and fighting for its life to stay afloat. And the sailors have pitched everything off that they can. And they're in the midst of being afraid of the storm. And where is Jonah? He's asleep in the bottom of the ship. It's Like I said, it's this odd picture. It says Jonah went down to Joppa and he went down onto the boat and then he went down into the bottom of the boat and went down into sleep. It's this uh, imagery of him abandoning. If God is up, Jonah's going down. Not only is Jonah running away from where he's supposed to be going from the west, he's going as far east as he can. He's he's supposed to be staying connected with God, but it's as if he's trying to get as far away from God as he possibly can is the imagery that's there. When they wake him up and they bring it up there, they do something odd as you read it there. They do something called casting lots. They literally take some dice. And it was something that we um, see a lot in Scripture as a a way of kind of dividing chance divining and they would cast the lot and basically say like you're one, you're two, you're three, you're four whichever one the dice lands on that's whose fault it is. Seems kind of arbitrary except it works. 
They cast the dice, and the dice lands on Jonah. And they say, Who are you? From where? You know, what's your purpose? What's your business? From what people are you from? And all of those kind of things. And Jonah responds in verse 9 of chapter 1 He said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God. Every time, just so you know, if you're ever reading in the Scriptures and you see the word the Lord and it's in all caps, that is a transliteration to help you understand that's a use of God's name, Yahweh, that's there. This is Him saying, I don't just believe in any old God, I believe in Yahweh, the God. I believe. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry lands. And at His declaration of that, it says in verse 10 that the men became extremely frightened. And they said to Him, How could you do this? For the men knew that He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because He had told them. Their confrontation came as Jonah, this rebellious prophet of Israel, said, I fear the Lord, the one who made the heavens and the sea. And the sailors feared the sea. And so the confrontation of their sin was, we've now taken aboard this this God that is the one that made the sea, and they experienced this, uh, this... Uh, This confrontation, it made them afraid. And at this point, the truth made them afraid or fearful of their situation. They were afraid in the confrontation. Nineveh experienced the same kind of confrontation when Jonah came to them and he declared in a simple form, 40 days and Nineveh Nineveh will be overthrown. And it's an interesting thing as he says it because he does absolutely the bare minimum. God just told him, go and preach against them. He does not mention the name of God, at least in the verse that's there. He does not give them a way of escape. He does not give them any form of hope. All he does is confront them and he says... Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be... And the word that's used there oftentimes is translated overthrown. It literally means to be turned over as though a, a, a town that is... If you imagine a, a town that exists and then it doesn't. It's completely... Everything is toppled. Everything is buried. Everything is crushed. Everything is flipped over. And they're confronted with this truth that there's something that's going on and their response is either to believe the truth or not believe the truth. And the story tells us that they, they did believe it. Which leads us to the next movement, right? So we've got, we've got that we have rebellion, consequence, and confrontation. Then we have uh, affirmation. The act of belief. The act of belief. You can be confronted with truth, but until you believe it, it doesn't do you any good, right? You can, you can be told that something's wrong, but if you don't believe it, being told it doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. Belief is a supernatural event that in its doing undoes what was broken in the fall. Let me say that again. Belief is a supernatural event. You probably have never thought about this about in the context of scriptural belief, but it is supernatural for it to click on. and It's not a given. It's a supernatural event that in its doing, in the giving of that, in that 
moment of belief and its doing undoes what was broken in the fall. When I say the fall, think back all the way to the beginning of Genesis when that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there and Satan came and tempted Eve and he said, you know, God's lying to you. If He knows that in the day that you eat of it, you'll be like Him knowing good and evil. And the interesting thing about that is up until that point, the only thing that they'd ever experienced was good. Tov. This, this word depicting everything that is right and everything that is true. And after that moment, everything was undone. You see, in the act of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not that they began to all of a sudden know these things. It's that for themselves, they began to determine what they thought was good and what they thought was evil. It shifted the way that mankind worked. And we see that playing out even in the story of that. That uh, the problem is that these, more often than not, are, are uh, let me back up, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil gave man the ability to determine for himself what he or she deemed to be good or evil. And the problem is that these, more often than not, conflict with what God has said is good. And it puts us at odds with others because of our own conflicts with each other. So think about this in terms of Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve, they're, they're it. They're, they're all that's there. And they both eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as husband and wife, their first response is to do what? Hide from each other physically cover themselves up from husband and wife. Why? Because their own desires, their own affections, their own situations are now in conflict with each other. And the act of belief, biblical belief, coming to believe what is true about what God says undoes what was done all the way back in the fall. Belief that my sin is actually sinful is like a deaf person hearing for the first time. You guys ever seen any of the videos where somebody gets one of those cochlear implants? You know, it's a surgical procedure where they literally put an electronic uh, node in through the ear canal and it connects to that nerve that's in there. And they literally turn it on. It's just they can't hear anything. There's nothing, there's no receptors going in and they literally flip a switch and all of a sudden the person can hear. And there's such great videos because you just see this, you know, this wife that's been deaf her entire life and it clicks on and she hears her husband's voice for the first time. Or the little child that's two or three years old and they're sitting there playing with the stuff and they put the thing on and all of a sudden they switch it on and all of a sudden they're smiling as they hear for the first time it's there. It's, it's supernatural almost. It feels like that. That's what it is to actually come to belief as the Scriptures describe it. That my sin is actually sinful. That my sin is actually hateful towards God. That my sin is contrary to the way in which God has made the world as a divine gift and a belief that we can, when we experience it, when we come to know it and understand it, it relieves us of this. This kind of belief is true understanding. It's a knowing of what is actually real. But knowing what is real and responding to what is real are not the same thing. Knowing what is real and responding to what is real are not the same thing, which leads us to the last act of this. Restitution, which is the act of repentance. 
restitution, the act of repentance. At the beginning of this, if I were just to ask, what would you, how would you define repentance? Many people would probably define repentance as something along the lines of being sorry, feeling bad. Maybe just saying you were sorry, but a feeling primarily in the the nature of this. Repentance as it plays out in Scripture has all kinds of different ways in which it happens, but it literally is a change of direction, a change of mind, a change of not just belief, but how that belief changes how we act. It steps into action with the reality of the truth that we have believed is. We see it three times here in this. We see that the sailors themselves, they don't know how to repent. They don't know what they're supposed to do. They cast the lot, Jonah, it's Jonah, Jonah's the man, and, and they realize you've sinned against God and the consequences of that are having effects on us. We haven't believed in this God and we're terrified. We don't know what to do. So they look at him, the one that has sinned, and they say, tell us what to do. And Jonah says, throw me over the side of the boat. And the, and the waves will stop. And their response is, that's crazy talk. So they get on their oars and they start rowing as hard as they can to try to get to shore. And the wind and rain just comes as much or, uh, harder as it goes with that. And then he says uh, in uh, verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13, However, the men rowed desperately to return to the land, and they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And notice, if you're reading that, it's all caps, Lord. They're calling on the name of Yahweh specifically, not generically to some random God. They're praying to Him specifically. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So their act of repentance was literally to pick Jonah up and throw him over the boat. And it's crazy. It says they did that and the sea stopped its raging. Can you imagine how terrifying that must have been? I mean, you see the movies, right, where they got, you know, they're wearing the rain slicker and the rain's just pouring off of their brim and they're trying to pull the bat, you know, batten the hatches and all this kind of stuff. And also they pick the guy up, throw him over, and shoo, dead quiet. And I love this. It says, and the sea, or they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly. See, beforehand they just feared greatly. But now they fear the Lord greatly. And look at what they do. The next thing, it's just one line. It says, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. And again, this is one of those things we fly over. They can't do this on the boat. They, they've pitched everything off. So they don't have stuff to sacrifice on the boat. They can't, do, they can't offer sacrifice. This means literally they went back to shore made a sacrifice to Yahweh, made vows to Him, and persisted in their worship of Him. Their belief turned to repentance in a change of their whole life. It was an act of changing that persisted in their life. We see Jonah repents in chapter 2 in prayer from the belly of the fish. 
says in 17 that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. And he cries out uh, in this way. It's this big poetic thing. And he describes literally sinking down and having seaweed wrapped around his head and being in Sheol, the place of death. And yet God spared him as he thought, as he cried out to God in the midst of all of that. And he prayed that prayer and he concludes it with this one profound statement. He says in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. He knows it's true and he responds in repentance. I shouldn't have done that. Lord, forgive me. And what does God do? Verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. One of the only times vomit is used anywhere in Scripture. And Nineveh, they heard a five-word sermon. And in Mass, in chapter 3, verse 5, when they heard it, they believed the Lord. They believed in God. They listened to what was said and they did what was necessary. From the least to the greatest, they put on sackcloth, burlap bags, if you will. Not dramatic, itchy, scratchy, uncomfortable stuff. A a sign of mourning. A sign of grief. And they sat on uh, on, uh, piles of ash themselves. They even, this is, it's almost kind of comical is their response on it. They even made the animals do this. They put burlap sacks on the animals and they made the animals go sit in the ash. As though the animals needed to repent as well. It just seems crazy. It's like everything, everybody in Nineveh responds to this is the picture of it. Repentance produces action on the part of the one doing the repenting. This is the part that we need to remember on this. That repentance uh, is something that we do. It calls us to action. Belief, true belief, produces action on the part of the believer. This is what makes faith, faith. Instead of just simply belief. Oftentimes, you know, do we believe? Do we believe this information? We're not just called to believe, we're called to faith. And faith is a coin with two sides. It is belief and repentance. It's the posture of us that as we are confronted with the truth of God, of who He is and who we are and the reality of it, we change. We act differently. We respond differently to this world. We repent. Faith is like a two-step dance. That we dance all of our life. We never outgrow the reality of repentance in our own Christian life. It is this constant, as God reveals truth to us, we respond accordingly. Repentance always produces a miraculous outcome. Repentance produces God changing His mind. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. That may sound very odd to you. God doesn't change. Let alone God changing His mind. And I would not say this if the text itself did not say it. Repentance always produces a miraculous outcome. Repentance changes God's mind. Look at uh, in chapter 3, verse uh, 10. Actually, let me back up. Uh, Verse 9, this is the end of the king's edict as he's telling them 
to, uh, that the nation needs to respond in repentance. And he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that, he were, so that we will not perish. They don't have an certainty that, God, that the, the prophetic statement was going to be true. Forty days and yet Nineveh will be overturned. Verse 10, When God saw their deeds, their act of repentance, that they turned from their wicked way. Literally, that word turned is the word that in other places is turned, is deemed repent. That they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them and did not do it. Let me give you the very rough translation of how this, how this goes. God changed His mind concerning the raw. Has anybody picked up what that word is that I've used a number of times is? Ra and Tov, the tree of the knowledge of Tov and Ra. Evil. That God relented concerning the Ra, the calamity, the disaster, the evil that He had decided to do to them and did not do it. That's what the text says. This is one of those harsh realities of us. When we think of sin, we think of sin in terms of just naughtiness, right? A lot of times. You know, whatever. It's a little white lie. It's a little, you know, uh, you know, a little dip into lust, a little whatever. It's, you know, it's no big deal. It deserves death, is what the Scriptures say. See, God feels about our sin, all of our sin, the same way that we feel about child trafficking, you know, human trafficking. We think it's evil. God feels that way about the sins that we joke about. We laugh at. And repentance does something dramatic. It changes the outcome of what was going to happen. That God had determined He was going to do and He changes His mind and doesn't do it. That's a pretty profound thing. And what is it that produces that act? Repentance. God relented from the raw, the evil, the disaster that He intended to do to them. Now, remember last week, if you were here, we said that Jonah made a statement in chapter 4 about why he ran away, why he was angry. He said, God, I'm so angry because I knew, I knew that you were a God who was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in much love. He was quoting from, or from uh, uh, Exodus chapter 34 where God gives the new tablets after Moses had broke the first two. And, and He gives those second ones and He says, this is who I am. I am the Lord God. I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding much love. He quotes that again. That should be a clue to us. There's something connected back into Exodus. Exodus chapter 32, verse 14 reads this. See if this sounds any familiar. This is after the golden calf incident where Moses has gone up to make the two tablets and he comes back down and he finds Aaron has made a gold calf that all of the Israelites are now worshiping, not doing what God had told them to do. And this is what he says. In, in Exodus chapter 32, after Moses uh, talks to God 
in repentance for the sins of the nation. And it says in Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, So the Lord relented concerning the Ra, the disaster, the calamity, the evil disaster that He had said He would bring on the people. Repentance changes what God intended to do. That's no small thing in Scripture, guys. God intended to sink the boat with the sailors on board. God intended to let Jonah be fish food. And God intended to destroy the Ninevites. And the repentance, at the repentance of each one, God stayed His hand of justice. Now we have to ask the question as we think about these things. Is this right? Is it right that God does this? It's one of the reasons why this is such a start. Like the, the, the caricature that is made up of Nineveh, they're evil. They're evil. And God says, you're off the hook. You've done evil. You literally skinned people alive and stuck them on poles in front of the cities so that you would terrify these people. You did horrendous acts and you're off the hook. Why? Because you put on a burlap coat and sat on ashes, you're, you're free to go. What? If evil really is evil, uh, and as evil is really is uh, evil, then justice, it has to be done. Justice must be done. If justice isn't done, then God can't be just. You feel that? In other words, if repentance changes the mind of God, and then God relents from it and doesn't deal with it, then now God is unjust because He hasn't dealt... Or is God now unjust because He hasn't dealt appropriately with sin? Think about it this way. If a serial killer is in court and he begins to lament his crimes, weeping and crying and sobbing and snots coming out of his nose and everything. He's just so so remorseful. Oh, I'm so sorry. And he pleads at the feet of the family members of the people that he's killed. And he goes to the judge and he says, I'm so sorry. I'm so broken. I'm so everything else. And if the judge looks at him and says, you're free to go. You're free to go. Your repentance has let you go. Is that judge good? No. Does the change of mind of that individual change the outcome of what has to happen? God responds to repentance is only just if God Himself is the one that is actually going to take what is due to that sin upon Himself. He can't pass it off. He has to take it upon Himself. Now look at this. Actually, I want you to take your Bible and flip to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And I want you to see exactly what's going on here. Romans chapter 3, starting verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says this, But now, in present time, the righteousness of God, the justness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. So God's justice has been made aware, and all the law, all that Exodus, Leviticus stuff, and the prophets, which includes Jonah, they all bear witness to God's righteousness that's been made manifest to us apart from just following the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, catch this. This was to show God's righteousness, His justness, because in His divine forbearance, He had, what? Passed over former sins. He had been the judge that looked at the repentant and said, you're free to go. And we go, that's not just. How can that be just? This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The story of Jonah puts into this juxtaposition this reality of going like, God, how can you forgive Nineveh? For the Jewish person reading this, going like, these are polytheists. They're worshiping false... They've, they've literally committed evil acts in worship to these false gods that have nothing to do... And you can just let them go? Jonah was a prophet. He was supposed to be your spokesman and he didn't do what he was supposed to do and you just let him off the hook? None of that makes sense. And remember we said that the book of Jonah is a prophetic mirror that it looks back and it says, oh, but have I sinned in these ways? Have I sinned in acts of omission? Have I sinned in acts of commission? Have I sinned in ignorance? Have I sinned in willful disobedience? Oh, yes, I have. And yet I expect that when I repent, God forgives, God releases, God says, it's okay, you're free to go and there's no consequence to myself. There is this future hope that is pointed forwards to, and it's the reason why Jesus, when people were asking for a sign, He says, no sign will be given to you except that that comes even from the book of Jonah. My death, three days, three nights in the belly of the earth, on your behalf. See, repentance, Christian, is the posture that we keep and persist in. We never outgrow repentance as a Christian. Repentance is not the thing that you do once to get saved and you're done. It's literally how we live. It's this posture of continually looking to Jesus and being uh, by the Holy Spirit conformed, changed, shaped. And the only way that it is good and true and real in our life, as he says here, is It was to show His righteousness that at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jonah points forward to a day when God's changing of His mind to not give us what we deserve would still be true of God being good. 
When you and I think of our own sin, we have to think of our own sin in terms of the fact that it deserved death. It did not deserve anything good or right. It deserved the lightning bolt in the moment, and yet God in His graciousness loved us. And not just loved us enough to just say, yeah, it's okay, no problem, no, no skin off my back, but took the full penalty that was due all of my sin on Himself. The reality of God's great love for us made manifest. The reality of God's goodness. And that's what he's going to close with in chapter 4 of shouldn't we care that our hope is that even our enemy can come to see this good God? Awakening in us the reality that we were once enemies who did not love God. This movement of uh, movement towards repentance is one that I would encourage you to ponder on. What is it in your life that you either knowingly are doing that does not honor God or omitting in your life things that you should be doing and aren't? Are there aspects of willful defiance or as you study God's Word, are there issues of ignorance that you're like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. And in those things, allow the Holy Spirit to move you to be confronted with truth. Believe it, but don't just stop there. Respond in repentance. Say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that was true. And thank You that in Jesus, I have nothing left to pay for. You've paid it all. And we walk according to that. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it is true and right and real. This is a heavy word this morning, Lord. Um, And so, God, I pray that uh, by whatever means necessary, God, You would help us to look inwardly, have that prophetic mirror turn into our own life. Say, God, what are the things that I need to move and repentance towards? Not just believing but actually responding to that belief, changing behavior, changing attitude, changing belief to be conformed to you, to have what was broken and evil made right and real in Jesus. We love you so much, God. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.